Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review, our orthopedic in-training exam review, and uh, we're continuing on with sports. Last episode, we talked some rotator cuffs. We talked a little bit about the throwing shoulder, so uh, we'll continue on today. Enjoy. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PRN personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, Nailed It Ortho in the How Did You Hear About Us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um. But uh, when you are looking at a patient with a slap tear, um, what is the kind of most common initial treatment for them? Yeah, so again, everything with orthopedics, I always start off non-operative. Um, so first thing is going to be rest. You're going to be rehabilitation. You're going to you know, perform a good physical exam on these patients and see if they have any evidence of GERD, if their total arc of motion is decreased, or if they have an internal rotation deficit greater than 25 degrees on one side, you may have them focus on addressing that and, and doing those posterior capsular uh, stretching exercises or those sleeper exercises. And I think they'll typically show that with the patient on their side and they'll be pushing their arm down towards the ground, which helps, uh, which helps stretch that posterior capsule. So again, first things, it's going to be non-operative treatment um, and, you you know, therapy, 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 therapy. Uh, now, say, for example, we have a patient that went to therapy, 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 and they're still hurting um, and they're still having mechanical symptoms, having pain, having decreased, uh, decreased function as far as, you know, playing sports. What are some of the surgical options for slap lesions? Yeah, you can consider repair of the slap lesion um, for an overhead throwing athlete. Uh, but you really have to pay attention to the uh, classification of that slap lesion. So the type one and type two tears where there's either minimal fraying or uh, really a minimal detachment of that superior labrum, then you can uh, consider repair of that. Uh, basically, you're just just like you would do for uh, like a, a soft tissue bank art, you're lassoing around the labrum and anchoring it down into the uh, glenoid. But the problem, and like I said, with the kind of posterior capsular release with the glenohumeral internal rotation uh, deficit athletes, when you, when you need to go in and repair a slap lesion, uh, especially in pitchers, because that is their job is to throw a baseball over and over and over and over and over again, their return to play is a little bit lower specifically for pitchers rather than position players. And uh, some of that intuitively makes sense. I mean, because a, a pitcher is throwing the ball upwards of 100 to 120 pitches a game, 
depending on how well they're doing. Uh, a position player may only throw a ball at the most 30 times during a game where they are actually throwing the ball hard at a target rather than just uh, kind of taking it easy because uh, it's not like the ball is being hit to the same player every single uh, play of the game. And so uh, the position players tend to do it better with the slap repairs than the uh, pitchers do uh, for sure. And then for those of us that have kind of reached our, uh, or we are well past our glory days of, uh, playing and <laughs> we're in our mid thirties here for those of us, uh, that have a slap lesion in our mid thirties, um, we're leaning a lot more towards the biceps tenodesis versus just a full tenotomy, uh, for anyone over the age of about 35, 36 and failed non-operative management. And essentially what that does is because the biceps attaches to that labrum, the more stress that the biceps puts on it, it's just going to keep pulling that labrum off further and further and cause more pain. But if you get rid of that biceps, you lose that uh, kind of tensile aggravating force. And uh, those people tend to do pretty well if you just tenodice their biceps and uh, let them return to their kind of recreational activities. Uh, but it's not that that prevents them from being a professional athlete. I do believe John Elway had a biceps tenodesis or he had a tenotomy. I can't remember, but he did not have a biceps that was attached to his superior labrum. And he was still able to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. So uh, it's not that it's a very morbid procedure. It's just repair of a slap lesion in an athlete really does not go over that well. Um, yep. And what are the uh, differences between tenodesis versus tenotomy? Yeah. So, you know, just some of the things just to know about is tenotomy is kind of associated with I mean, if you think about it, if you just cut the tendon, you can, um, so it can be associated with cramping as well as that kind of Popeye deformity where that tendon goes, uh, and retracts down to the arm. So that's one of the things that you have to let your patients know about that, you know, we're doing tenotomy, you may have this Popeye deformity. I think I remember one of uh, my attendings telling me a story where he didn't tell the patient that it's going to be a Popeye deformity and everything else in the surgery went great. But, um, afterwards the patient came, uh, very upset. Um, about that deformity. So make sure you, um, anybody here listening to this or even consenting patients for these procedures, let them know that that is a, uh, that is something that may occur. Um, but contrary to popular beliefs, tenotomy is not uh, associated with any weakness. And when you look at tenodesis or biceps tenodesis, these patients may still have groove pain uh, if their tendon is still in their intertubricular groove, which is why some uh, physicians use a uh, or, or employ subpectoral tenodesis, but um, you know that I think tenotomy versus tenodesis is a, a very long conversation. Can be controversial. I think they talked about it at that at this recent uh, ANA meeting or AOSM meeting, and um, so you know this is it is a controversial topic. But those are just some things to know about, and we have beat this to death, but let us go over it one more time. Uh, what is internal impingement? Internal impingement is uh, kind of going back to GERD and uh, these uh, kind of posterior or external rotation forces and a throwing athlete, but um, 
if you have a tight posterior capsule, what will happen is it will tend to fold and impinge between the humeral head and the glenoid. And that pinching of the posterior capsule is what is going to cause pain during that late cocking phase. So like that patient you saw that has pain with a tennis serve, if you just picture Wimbledon and Andre Agassi just coming up over the top, they have extreme external rotation when they're serving a, a tennis ball. You'll see it in baseball pitchers and in uh, the kind of javelin uh, athletes as well. So uh, uh, one more thing with these is similar to GERD is that posterior capsular stretching uh, is the mainstay and that is what they will test you on. Uh, on every single test you take, whether that's OITE or the ABOS uh, part one exam. Um, and then uh, kind of moving forward uh, to some of the uh, other uh, structures around the shoulder with degenerative disease, uh, like the acromioclavicular joint. What are some physical exam findings with patients of uh, AC joint arthritis? Yeah, so they may just have pain. Like if you palpate their AC joint, um, they can just have pain over that. They can have swelling. Uh, you can um, adduct their arm across their body. They can have pain with cross-body adduction. Um, and just continuing, you know, on imaging, some of the things you may see, just like any, anytime you have arthritis in any joint, you know, you see kind of the same things, joint space narrowing, osteophytes, and uh, the treatment algorithms can be the same as well. So when you are... Um, uh, when you're looking at treating these patients, they may benefit from an AC joint injection. Um, so these are you know, kind of our conservative treatments. And then when our conservative treatments are no longer working and you look at operative treatments, you can, uh, different things you can do is a distal clavicle resection or distal clavicle excision. Uh, and when you do these, you want to make sure you excise less than one centimeter to avoid instability. And you want to also want to preserve that posterior superior capsule. And I think we spoke about this way back in trauma uh, when we were talking about our AC separations and we talked about our uh, posterior and superior capsule um, uh, being kind of the strongest part of the capsule and how you don't want to resect that because that may lead to instability of that joint. So um, just know that uh, one of the that, that's one of the things to know about when you are treating these patients with AC arthritis. Um, now, in what patient is distal clavicle osteolysis common? You can see it in weightlifters. And uh, what's going to happen is uh, they'll have kind of a inflammation of the uh, distal clavicle hyperemia, and then they'll get late bone resorption uh, and osteolysis. Uh, you'll see either osteopenia uh, of the uh, distal clavicle versus just a kind of a vague uh, osteolysis. And the treatment for that is activity modification. And a lot of it is really from the pushing sort of exercises. So the, the bench press, the shoulder press, that sort of stuff is putting a lot of stress on that AC joint. Um, you can try an injection in the area really to just help with pain uh, in that uh, portion of the shoulder. And then for those that fail, uh, again, uh, like you said, that distal clavicle excision, uh, preserving that posterior superior capsule so that they don't develop late instability of that AC joint. Um, and speaking of weightlifters, uh, you see a guy come in, he's in his 40s, 
just jacked, but he takes his shirt off and he has a huge bruise uh, over his right upper chest. Um, what is the typical mechanism of injury for this sort of uh, uh, injury and what part of the tendon is most commonly uh, injured? Yeah, so when you look at these kind of these pec major um, ruptures, there are actually some like good viral videos that, that go around and show like big strong guys like weightlifting and then they're pushing up or going or you know they're, they're doing a bench press and then you'll just you'll see like the tendon snap and you'll see them drop the weight and uh, it's typically due to eccentric contraction uh, again common in weightlifters and they and it's most commonly to actually avulse the tendon than rather than have like a, a intramuscular tear of the pec um, te- pectoralis major and the treatment for these for partial tears it can be treated non-operatively you know with rehab uh, but if you have a complete tear, especially in your, you know, active athletes, um, this is uh, going to be treated uh, with a repair. So this is going to be a complete tear where you kind of repair that pectoralis uh, major tendon just lateral to the uh, biceps itself. And uh, uh, another shameless plug, if you want to learn more about pectoralis uh, tendon um, injuries and how to manage it, you can uh, look at an article uh, published in JBJS reviews, uh, including myself and a couple of other authors on how to manage these pec major tendon um, injuries. It was published here in 2021. So um, definitely go and check that out if you want to learn a little bit more about pec major tendon ruptures. All right. Um, but just moving forward and, and talking about, you know, the shoulder, um, one of the things that this diagnosis I've missed recently in clinic that my attendees have caught once or twice uh, has been a frozen shoulder. So uh, what is the etiology of, uh, of frozen shoulders? The uh, frozen shoulder you're going to see most commonly in uh, kind of that middle age uh, female around uh, 40 to 70 years old. And it's highly associated with uh diabetics and those with hypothyroidism. Um, so those are two uh, uh, giveaways. And how does that frozen shoulder typically present in these patients? Yeah, so they present, we know, with have shoulder pain. And one of the big things that you notice is that they have a loss of external rotation. And this is one of the things that I've noted and actually seen in the clinic a couple of times this week. They'll just say, you know, sometimes they'll have it from both shoulders. Sometimes they'll say, oh, my left, right shoulder was hurting not too long ago, but then that stopped. But now my left shoulder is really bothering me. You know, it really bothers me at night and, and moving it around. And then when you examine them and you have their arm at their side, they really lack external rotation. And sometimes they can have a positive inferior glide test because of uh, inferior capsules tight. So you'll you'll try to uh, you try to glide their their humeral head inferiorly, and you won't be able to do it. Um, so these are things to know. And and as this kind of disease progresses, um, at first it's pain, and you lose external rotation. But again, as this progresses, you can have a global loss of range of motion that can be seen, where they not only lose their active range of motion, but then they also lose their passive range of, of motion itself. And um, so what in patients that have, you know, these frozen shoulders, what is the essential lesion and common um, histological findings that are going to be seen also on the MRI? The essential lesion of the frozen, frozen shoulders, uh, uh, kind of a, a tightening of the coracohumeral and rotator interval portion of the capsule. 
And what you'll see is on histology is uh, type three collagen and uh, myofibroblast and fibroblast seen under uh, histology. And uh, again, as we know, the coracohumeral ligament and the rotator interval are anterior structures of the shoulder. And uh, for the uh, first and second years listening to this, uh, thinking about it intuitively, an anterior structure tightness is going to lead to a loss of external rotation. And that's why they get, that's the most commonly uh, presenting symptom is a loss of external rotation. So this stuff, it, it intuitively makes sense once you kind of see about it, read about it, learn about it a little bit more. And uh, you just move forward in uh, your overall just uh, kind of knowledge of orthopedics and you're learning every single day uh, to uh, to get better and, and uh, prepare yourself for OITE for the boards and also for your future patients. Um, and then kind of moving forward, uh, the uh, stages of frozen shoulder, like you, you briefly talked about it a little bit where first they get pain, then there's a, a loss of external rotation, but uh, it doesn't stop there does it oh no and uh you know one of our tens will, will talk and counsel patients and say you know this is typically a self-limiting thing you know it comes in stages and eventually it'll get better but it can range you can get better in one year or it could take five years to get better <laughs> it yeah. can take a while but it's actually um resolves but when you talk about the stages of frozen shoulder you have your early phase where you have kind of pain and then this kind of in, insidious onset of, uh, you know, just losing that external rotation. And one of the things that you want to make sure you rule out is any patient that comes in with uh, limited external rotation is a locked posterior dislocation of the shoulder. Uh, we talked about that when we talked about posterior dislocations in our trauma in our trauma section, and, and that's going to be the main thing is that the patients aren't going to be able to externally rotate. So once that's ruled out, of course, um, we're talking again back about frozen shoulders. So the early phase, pain, insidious onset, the uh, the the mid phase and the mild phase is now you actually have that frozen uh, shoulder. The shoulder's frozen, so you have a global range of motion loss. So they lose their active as well as their passive range of motion. And in the late phase, um, which again can take anywhere from one to five years it's gonna be thawing so you the thawing phase of this uh of this uh, uh condition where you start to have gradual uh range of motion starts to return so all in all it's a self-limiting um uh, condition but you know patients do not hate it they they, they really don't like it does doesn't do the best uh and speaking about that what are um some some treatment options uh, for a frozen shoulder, and I guess what kind of what's seen uh, as well sometimes in in these patients. Uh, yeah, if they go so far down the path of uh, diagnostic studies, I, again, this is uh, a most commonly a clinical diagnosis uh, rather than a uh, imaging diagnosis. But um, you can see. Uh, glenohumeral joint capsular thickening, a loss of that axillary pouch. Um, once you've looked at enough shoulder MRIs, you'll start to notice that there is a, a small pouch in that inferior shoulder uh, that um, really, the, the only way you, you notice a huge difference in it is one with this 
frozen shoulder, but also with like the haggle lesions that'll be separated and it'll be, have a big inferior pouch, but, um, you can also see coracohumeral uh, ligament thickening, uh, but none of these are really pathognomonic for a frozen shoulder. And again, like we talked about, it's therapy, therapy, therapy. If at the end of all this therapy, at the end of injections and all of that stuff, they just haven't improved, you can go in uh, for uh, manipulation under anesthesia, uh, rotator interval release and capsular release. You just have to be cognizant of the other anatomic structures, uh, notably the uh, axillary nerve uh, and uh, all of that while you're doing the capsular release. The downside to needing to operate on these patients is uh, like in all other areas of orthopedics, um, anytime you operate, scar tissue forms. And these patients already have an issue with a tight shoulder, a uh, kind of capsular thickening with scarring. And if you have to operate on them and you create more scarring, there is the possibility that this condition either comes back or does not completely resolve. And so that's the downside of needing to operate on these patients is you exhaust therapy until the end of time uh, but you have to yeah. also prepare them for tightness and stiffness after a procedure as well. Um, and then uh, we've kind of gone over this in uh, part of our uh, early sports uh, talks, but uh, other shoulder type issues is a uh, like a stinger or a burner. And what what are those? Yeah, so these are going to be our unilateral brachial plexopathy. You know, again, this just affects one um, side. It could be, you know, patient land wrong, or you, you can see this in, you know, football games and different sporting events. Um, but a burner, again, is a unilateral brachial plexopathy. Um, these are patients that may have, you know, burning, tingling in one side that resolves within minutes. They have no cervical spine tenderness, have a completely normal C-spine exam. And for these patients, it is okay to uh, return to play once these symptoms resolved. Things you want to be on the lookout for or careful of are if a patient has bilateral symptoms or has any um, C-spine symptoms or any lower extremity symptoms, that is that it would clue you into that is not a stinger or a burner. And you do not want to have those patients return back to play without a thorough evaluation. Uh, and, and, and this, I think, you know, they, they say the father of learning is repetition. And this will be, I think maybe our third time repeating this, but so we hope that everybody gets this right. If they get asked this by an attending or if they see this on a, a test question, uh, but what is the difference between uh, Superscapular notch and spinal glenoid notch uh, entrapment. Ah, uh, yes. These will both affect the suprascapular nerve. Uh, one, as it passes passes in the suprascapular notch, uh, affects both the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus, and causes pain uh, because of compression due to the, uh, either like a hypertrophy or uh, some other entrapment uh, by the transverse scapular ligament, and then. The spinal glenoid notch uh, is going to be the second site of entrapment where it really only affects the infraspinatus. It is not associated with pain, but you'll see it in 
uh, either a volleyball player or a, a overhead throwing athlete where they have a loss of external rotation. And again, treatment for that is cyst decompression with a possible labral repair. Uh, and then other stuff we haven't quite talked about yet, uh, like quadrilateral space sy syndrome. And so how does that present? Yeah, so these are going to be patients that come in and they'll have, you know, they'll complain of pain and paresthesias with any like, you know, overhead activity. And they may complain of, well, they, they, they won't complain of weakness in their deltoid, but they'll uh, complain of, uh, of just kind of some shoulder weakness. But the main thing to know is that they have pain and paresthesias with overhead activities. And on physical examination, you may see some weakness in your deltoid or there's teres minor. And what this is or what this quadrilateral space syndrome is, is when you have axillary nerve or um, posterior circumflex artery compression in the quadrilateral space. And, and, and what this is, it's common to find like a fibrous band between his teres major and the long head of the triceps that's causing um, that, that nerve compression or that artery compression. And then how you diagnose these is with an arteriogram, which is going to show compression of your posterior circumflex artery as it goes through the quadrilateral space. And you treat this with kind of releasing that space and decompressing it. So you just want to make um, some room for those neurovascular structures to uh, course in their space. Now, I've never seen this. I've never seen it done before or any, any one of these releases or decompressions, uh, but it is something that at least is in the books. The uh, one thing that you can be able to rule out on your diagnoses. And uh, speaking of uh, ruling out things on diagnoses, um, this is this next condition is something that I actually, I, I thought of and I did the physical exam wrong. And, uh, and then my attending came in and did it right. And, and he's like, oh, you didn't think of this? And like, he found the actual like condition. And I was like, dang, man, like I, I talked to him. I was like, oh, you know, I don't think it's this. I didn't find, you know, I didn't find this exam. And then he went and found it and showed it to me. Um, but we're talking about thoracic outlet syndrome. So uh, what is that? Uh, the thoracic outlet syndrome is a compression of the neurovascular structures as they pass through the uh, scalene muscles. And I think it's between the anterior and middle scalene is the uh, triangle of uh, kind of fatty tissue where the, these structures pass. Uh, and, and then the first rib is the kind of inferior portion of this uh, triangle. And um, when you get a compression of all the neurovascular structures in that area, uh, you can see arm pain with paresthesias and a uh, a positive right test, which is probably what your uh, attending <laughs> yeah. did. Uh, and basically what that is, is a hyper abduction test where um, I believe you just, you just bring that arm just straight up overhead and uh, soon they'll have uh, a, kind of paresthesias in the arm uh, as it's brought up overhead. Um, but then uh, I, I believe there's a, a component of it where they are also testing the uh, quality of the radial pulse. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what it is. Like, that's what I like, you know, when I did, I had my hand on the radial pulse and I just kind of forward flexed the arm straight up and it, and it didn't change and it felt the exact same. And I was like, Oh, it's negative. 
But then, you know, when you go in there and you actually abduct the arm and, you know, you slowly abduct, you may abduct it to 45 and then up to 90 and, and the pulse will go away. Like actually go like she had a we had a patient had a very strong bounding pulse. And as soon as you abducted it to about 90 degrees, pulses vanish. And then it was it's pretty cool when it actually happens uh, and you see it and you diagnose it, like, oh, they have a positional thoracic outlet syndrome or whatever they may have or whatever may be the etiology behind it. But, um, yeah, that's a. Uh, that's how you how you do those tests. But uh, going further in thoracic outlet, um, you can see it with like a cervical rib. So a rib that is uh, more superior to the normal first thoracic rib. Um, and then any sort of scalene muscle abnormalities or joint filling space in that uh, area or not joint filling, but uh, space filling uh, lesion in that area. Um, as the, uh, all those structures pass through the anterior and middle scalene, uh, muscles, and then, uh, treatment for it, uh, depending on their symptoms and when they happen, you can do conservative management with activity modification, but if it's starting to impede on just their normal daily routines, then you can consider like a first rib resection to create more room, but Obviously, that is a uh, that is not a surgery that is without its own complications, like a pneumothorax. Uh, you're you're near a lot of neurovascular structures, so nerve damage, vessel damage, all of that sort of stuff. So, uh, the answer to the question will be first rib resection. But again, it's not a a simple procedure by any means. Um, oh no! And then. Uh, uh, we also see injuries to the long thoracic nerve. Uh, how does that happen? And, and what is that kind of physical exam that you see? Yeah, so this can be due to, you know, a compression injury or a traction injury. A lot of times this can happen patients that are, you know, backpacking for a long period of time or, or weightlifters. And uh, what you'll see is, you know, when you, if you look at the patient from the back and you carefully examine uh, the scapulas, you'll notice that they have medial scapular uh, winging, which is going to be due to the serratus anterior um, muscle being dysfunctional due to the injury of the long thoracic nerve, which is uh, uh, innervated by C5 through C7. So again, this injury to the long thoracic nerve can lead to serratus anterior dysfunction, which is the C5 to C7 nerves, which can lead you with medial scapular winging. And how do you treat this? This is going to be therapy, therapy, therapy. Um, you want to kind of strengthen that serratus anterior and you want to do this prolonged therapy, like a year plus, you know, you really want to uh, to make sure they go through a full course and, and a lot of patients will tend to get a little bit better. But for the ones that don't, um, an operative option for those patients are going to be actually a split pectoralis major tendon transfer where you actually split a part of the tendon and you transfer it down and you attach it on the scapula um, to allow, you know, to allow the, um, uh, that, that medial winging to, to stop and kind of help reduce that scapula back to where it needs to be. And then some, there's some techniques you actually use a strip of fascia lata um, as well uh, with the, uh, pec major transfer um, in chronic palsies, but you know I, I haven't seen this done. I know it. I know it gets done. Um, 
or at least in the literature there's stuff about yeah. it but <laughs> i have not i've not seen it done but that is a treatment option for these patients that have you know these chronic long thoracic nerve palsy that just do not get better with therapy thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the nailed ortho podcast please go ahead and hit that subscribe button that is a button <laughs> Um, also please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at nailed it ortho. And if you have not, please go and leave us a review and leave us a rating. A five-star rating would help out a bunch. Please. It takes 30 seconds to do. And until next time.